everyone. Welcome to a very exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West. And today we are so excited because we are talking about Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Broomsticks. Certainly one of my favorite Disney films and definitely one of my favorite live action animation Disney films. Pump it up there, brother. You're already being a dull academic type. It is one of our favorite movies, not just live action or animation, but I think it's one of our favorite movies overall, Teej, right? I, I don't know. I, I'm quite the Disney aficionado, so I have like a huge, I have a, a large number of Disney movies that I'm quite a fan of. So I would definitely put Bedknobs in the top tier, along with, you know, Sleeping Beauty and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Robin Hood, Sword and Stone. It's, it's right up there with that whole chunk of Disney movies that I am quite fond of. Well, unlike TJ... Uh, I grew up loving Disney because I was a kid during the. Wait, you know, wait, wait. Sort of... I, that's I, that's literally. I also grew up watching loving. Well, Disney. maybe you should let me finish my sentence. Unlike TJ, I also grew up loving Disney because I was a kid in the '90s during the Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Aladdin phase, Lion King. Uh, but as an adult, I have come to passionately loathe Disney. I hate all the movies. I hate the company. I hate everything it stands for. And the one shining beautiful thing that gets the exception is this movie i really wish i hadn't let you finish your sentence (laughs) i mean i will agree with you that disney's output these days is very inconsistent it's not just well it's for me it's not just about like what the movies are it's about what the company represents yeah but we live in capitalism so as you know as as the kids say there's no ethical consumption under capitalism so i can still like my disney and not have to be troubled by the moral questions okay let's this podcast back on track and talk about the fun that is bed knobs and broomsticks so okay teach we have so much to talk about today but i think just for if there's any one out there who for some totally bizarre reason hasn't seen the movie or more likely they just haven't seen it in a while will you give just a really quick summary i will so in this movie Angela Lansbury stars as Eglantine Price which by the way is a great name it is one of the best names i've ever heard <laughs> Who is a witch? Is that even a real name? Is Eglantine like a name anyone else in the world ever has or I, had? I've heard it elsewhere. Yeah, you have. Uh-huh. Okay, it's actually it a, just makes me think of eggplants. I mean, it is a plant, but anyway, we don't need to get into the etymology of Eglantine. <laughs> so she is a witch in training. She is partaking in a correspondence course to be a witch, and she is, as she thinks of it, burdened with three children who are evacuees from London during the Blitz. So she sort of ropes them into her witchery and she ha- ends up going to London where they encounter Cornelius Brown, the Emilius leader of Brown. this. Oh, sorry, Emilius. I always say em- em- Emilius. Yes. Emilius Brown, the leader of this correspondence school. And they have all sorts of magical adventures. And then she. But he's a fake. He is a fake. He's a huge but charlatan. But she turns out to be a real witch is the twist. In the end, she ends up bringing to life the suits of armor and other accoutrements of the local history museum who then end up de- repelling the German invaders. Yeah, because this is set in the 40s. There's like, we actually see Nazis invading, which we'll get to. Yes. Uh, Nazis, and so, of course, as, the, as any movie set in that time has to end, it ends with the Nazis being driven away. It is so, I mean, I just have to say, it is so satisfying <laughs> to see Nazis get their asses kicked by a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of suits of armor. <laughs> animated you know suits of armor and things that aren't real like it is just so tremendously satisfying yes um okay so the movie came out in 1971 
and it was a lot longer than it is today. And then they cut a bunch. They've put some back in. Will you just explain quickly what you know about the different versions? So, yes, I will. It's quite difficult because it's just been re-released in so many different versions over the years, both because Disney had a habit of releasing things into theaters after the initial time that they would do it. It would often be re-released to get more money, but also because throughout the 90s, they basically tried to re-edit it to get it as close as possible to the original version. Um, And then they released that, of course, on DVD and Blu-ray to hype up the home video market which they were also doing throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And the longest version, if I recall rightly, is over... Because this the one most people watch is just under two hours. Mm-hmm. The most long, most restored version is well over two hours. Like two and a half, which, and a half, I think. 220. Almost, yeah. So they ended up you know, splicing in some of the footage. They had Lansbury re-record some of her lines. It was a huge production yeah. uh, and quite quite an ordeal, which I find pretty interesting given the kind of lukewarm reception the film received at the time. Like it's not a it's not considered by most people to be like a classic in the same way as say like Mary Poppins being the most notable example. But still they gave it a huge investment to get all this stuff restored. So you know, it's kind of fascinating textual history, not to get all academic, but it's fascinating in that regard. Well, too. and I, 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 the reason I ask is because I signify like, you know, people might have seen something that includes something we're not talking about, for instance, because exactly. when I, I owned the VHS tape when I was little, that's how I first encountered this movie. And I still have that VHS tape. Um, and I watched it so much. I knew the movie backwards and forwards. So when I watched it this time on Disney Plus, I was sort of curious to see, and it was exactly the version that I watched as a kid, which is the shorter one. Right. And I've seen the extended one ages ago. I think right after it came out, my parents bought it, and I've seen the restored version um, that Disney released on Blu-ray. I gotta say, I'm not thrilled with it. Like, maybe it's because I have a an attachment to this version. Because mm-hmm, it's like, the one we know and my, love. Yep. But I also, I mean, they got a very terrible person to dub in Emilius Brown's lines, because he was ill at the time of the recording. And they just don't sound like him. Mm. It just sounds like a stuffy British guy. Like, they're like, who can we get that sounds vaguely like the, <laughs> like David Tomlinson? So, yeah, we'll go with that. It just doesn't land. Mm, okay. And plus, I'm also, this is just my broader argument about these Disney restored versions. I often think that the reason they exist that they do is because they cut out all the extraneous stuff. So when you add it back in, it feels jarring. Because the film yeah. as it is is not intended to have, yeah, ha- did not intend to have all that added material. Yeah, I mean, this is a really tight script. Uh, it is. It's like we move from one event to another. There's not really any fluff or filler. And I think, you know, in terms of like screenwriting, it's it's really good. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I'd necessarily want to see it lengthened. Although I should say that there was a song of, that Lansbury sings, uh, Step in the Right Direction, that people think was a really good song. And, and that one was one that got cut. So maybe that should have been mm. back in. But look that up on YouTube if you want to hear it. But let's talk about the version we did watch. Um, TJ, let's start with what's your favorite part? Oh, God. I mean, okay, so I have two answers to that question because the, my favorite song is probably Portobello Road. Yeah. And my favorite part is where they go to the Isle of Nabumbu and meet the talking animals because I think that is just Magical. gorgeous Disney animation. Like the way that Disney has that skill at creating animal characters that look like the animal they're supposed to be, but also very. Not quite anthropomorphized, but close to it, like, because they have personalities, whether it's, you know, the king or the secretary bird or, you know, the various participants in the soccer match. Like, it's all so 
classic Disney, and I love every minute of it. I mean, Portobello Road. So Portobello Road is a street where they go to look through. Uh, there's a bunch of like used booksellers and trinkets. Everything and ev- ev- anything and everything a chap can unload is what's yeah. there. And so they're looking for half of this witchcraft book to find a missing spell. And, you know, uh, we watched Mrs. Santa Claus a while ago on this podcast, and we talked about um, Avenue Q, the big production number in that TV movie with Angela Lansbury, where everyone from the neighborhood is out singing and they're showing all the different facets of the neighborhood. This is a really similar production number. Mm-hmm. So we've got like the actual lines of the song telling us about Portobello Road and what it is, street where the riches of ages are stowed. But then we also have like this interim dance sequence where we see Scottish people dancing the bagpipes. We see Caribbean steel drums come out. We've got, I don't know, what else do we have? We have Indians dancing. We have just like all these different types of people dancing and singing together and they're all in this one street. And I love Oh, I know. That. I love, I could not. I cannot tell you how my whole body was moving during that part. Like I was just giddy with joy watching it, both because of nostalgia, but I also just think that it's one of those sequences that's straight out of classic Hollywood. This is not a cla- yeah. this is not a classic Hollywood film, but it's a clear evocation of classic Hollywood musical style, where you would have these interludes where there'd just be dance and color and song and just all the sort of utopian pleasures of of that particular genre. And it, you know, none of it's really germane to the story, but that doesn't matter because it's just so much fun to see people and bodies in motion and singing. And I just, it's visually stunning. And apparently it was even longer than it. It was longer. Which mm-hmm. I would gladly have taken more Portobello Road. But as it is, it's a truly stunning piece of, you know, musical filmmaking. I mean, I also think it's funny because um, Eglantine, Miss Price, gets so absorbed with looking for the other half of this missing book that she pretty much misses all the fun to be had on Portobello Road. But it also means that she's not really paying attention to these kids that are supposed to be in her care. And they're kind of just running amok. They're getting into stuff. They're um, One of them defaces some artwork. Another one jumps up and down on a couch and breaks it. I mean, they're just like going wild. And um, I kind of love that too. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I just, I, I love it as you say, like this, this, melting pot of people just kind of 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 london in particular and and figuring it as this metropolitan city that gives you i think especially considered against the backdrop of world war ii and the nazis and all that stuff is really kind of a sort of subtle Mm -hmm. message of inclusivity like that london is this place that is sharply at odds with the eugenic logic of nazism (laughs) like i think that that's yeah exactly we see people of color there's like a glorious moment where there's like these old fat ladies dancing and they're and everyone's mm-hmm. just clapping them on, right? And I think I think you're absolutely right. It's like in stark contrast to Nazi ideology. It's also just a little bit it's a like a moment of joy for a neighborhood mm-hmm. um at a time when life is really difficult, but for that reason it's a little bit confusing or at least it was to me as a kid cuz I like I thought we had to evacuate these kids because cities are dangerous. And yet here, everyone's like congregating in the middle of the street in the middle of the day in a city. Although, although there is the moment when the curfew guy comes through ringing the bell That's and they true. have to disperse. And Closing then they go, time. Yep. So I think you know, there are those subtle hints of the reality. And then the not so subtle hint of an unexploded bomb. <laughs> yeah. So Amelius Brown, he, Amelius Brown lives in this mansion and for he's trying to masquerade as someone who's very successful uh, with his magic talent and also wealthy. And so he's living in this 
mansion. And of course, it's only because the occupants have fled because there's an unexploded bomb in the front yard. Not just the occupants, the whole neighborhood. (laughs) The whole neighborhood has fled. And so he just gets to hang out in this mansion and squat there basically for the rest of the war. Um, (laughs) Which is really funny detail. (laughs) Which is also like, what is wrong with Mrs. Price? Like (laughs) the stuff she gets these kids into. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because the only thing she cares about is the book. Like, she just wants she the other half. She only cares half. about getting this spell, she, yeah. Because he cancels on her, like, cancels the correspondence course at the last, because she, to get this spell, the substitutionary locomotion spell, which is by way Which is a spell that she wants to be able to animate weapons to fight the Nazis, yep. right? And repel the Nazis. Yep. Should they invade, when of course they do. Right. So it's it's a very, you know, as you say, it's very questionable in terms of guardianship <laughs> oh, totally. they also tear up that house yeah, she's, she's like, like oh, don't you. touch anything this isn't really his house and then she just like lets them be and they're running around punching everything right i guess but it gives them a little bit of joy <laughs> okay so portobello road is your favorite part and then you love the isle of nabumbu sequence let's talk about that right about when they go to the island um which is inhabited by talking animals i'm sure you're wondering if you haven't seen it why are there talking animals other than the fact that it's a because Disney movie? Because Astaroth, the famous sorcerer, granted them speech, and then they, like any good any good robot story, they rose up and killed him. <laughs> yep, yep. Like any good up- proletarian uprising, they you know killed him and then sailed away and established their it's own. True, it's like the plot of Animal Farm. It is, and like Animal Farm, there's a strict hierarchy, and that the lion who clearly has inherited the magical star of Astaroth is now in charge and pretty much bullies everyone into doing what he wants. And no people are allowed on this island. That is true. But no they have to go there allowed. because they need the star of Astros that the lion is wearing because it has the words to the spell because they can't find them in the book, right? Right. So there's this fantastic sequence where it's like a mix of live action and animation. Um, the animals are all playing a soccer game. And did you notice they, they say soccer? So it's very clear that this was an American movie. Yep. Yeah. Um, I was like, no self-respecting Brit would ever say. No self-respecting Brit would say soccer. No. So they're playing soccer and uh, Emilius Brown volunteers to be the the referee, not realizing this game is like, these animals are like savage. Uh, It's basically the predators versus the prey. (laughs) Right. Because on the one scene, there's a hyena, a crocodile, a warthog. And the lion. And and a rhino. And then on the other team, uh, a gorilla is, is... it's an ostrich, a cheetah, um, the elephant is the goalie. You poor elephants. Are, and I, I, are elephants really afraid of mice? So the, no, the, the, a, pre, the predator team plays dirty, right? And they, they do all sorts of things and then they just run over the referee. And, um, of course, the vultures are the medics. So they are very invested in the referee dying. Um, and it's very funny. Which clearly happens frequently. <laughs> yeah, because they're really into it. But there's all these like dirty tricks that the Predator team plays, the King's team. And one of them is like they hold up a mouse to the elephant goalie and he gets really scared and then they kick a goal in. And I guess as a little kid, um, I think unless it comes up to Dumbo as well, I it think does. this is where I got the idea that elephants are afraid of mice. It happens in almost every Disney movie. Featuring but is that elephants. a real thing? No, it's not. Not even close. It is not. I can assure you that as a child, I was quite upset at this, like because it is not true. Like, yeah, it ha- but it happens repeatedly. I'm not sure if Disney. I know it's like an elephant mythology or- thing now, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I don't think Disney invented it, but they certainly popular. Yeah, it. for sure. It's it's very strange, but anyway, but yeah, yeah. 
And of course, the the, the king makes up the rules as he goes along because you know because he's the king. Fun fact: the guy who plays the voice of the lion also plays the voice of the secretary bird, like they're the same voice actor, which I find very interesting. I, I don't know; I always find that stuff very fascinating. Before the the soccer game, uh, they crash land because they have a they travel on a bed with a, a magic traveling spell on the knob, hence bed knobs. And uh, they crash land in the lagoon. And I actually think the sequence in the lagoon might, I mean, the soccer match is hilarious. And then like, as someone who studies film and media, I just appreciate how hard and expensive that soccer match must have been to create. Um, but I think the sequence in the lagoon is a little bit more fun because we get a song there. Mm, we do get bobbing along bobbing along in the on the bottom of the beautiful briny sea and they're they're floating and they're sort of dancing while floating and we have the fish are dancing with them and there's like a fish jazz band i think that's really fun yeah i mean i will say that you know in that song and in throughout the songs in general you can definitely tell these that are the sherman brothers the very famous songwriting team that worked a lot for disney and I don't mean this pejoratively, but they the rhymes are very cutesy. Like, you know, they're meant to be, like, they're very obvious, but I like them because of that. And it's, I think, part of the reason that these songs are such earworms mm-hmm. is because the Sherman Brothers knew how to make a song that would stick with you. Yeah, earworms for sure, because both of your favorite scenes have been stuck in my head this week. Um, but I'm going to say a different one for my favorite part than I usually say this time watching, what really stuck out to me was the home guard. Uh, so at the beginning and the end of the movie, we see the soldiers of the old home guard, all the older retired men of the village who have gathered in formation to join this volunteer service that's going to be in charge for like sort of managing civilians and giving the army time should a Nazi invasion come. And um, they're marching and singing into town. And it, it actually made me cry this time watching because these are people who likely fought in World War One and now they're old. And here they are doing this again as old men, volunteers. They don't have the proper equipment. One of them is marching with a shovel. He brought a shovel to fight off Nazis. Like, how does that not make you cry? And then the, one of the lines of the song is, um, we wrote the story of the old brigades and we know the glory of yesterday's parades. Which is like, ah. Oh. How do you not cry at that? And then, of course, at the end of the movie, Emilius Brown realizes that trying to be famous and a, being a charlatan and a con man is not the best life. And he joins them and he marches off with them. And that's our ending. So it's totally the best part of the movie now for me. So when Bridget was telling me uh, when she watched this that she was choking up about the old home guard, I scoffed, even though, of course, I cried everything. But then as I started watching it, I, too, started getting choked up. Um both because my grandfather served not in World War One, obviously, but in World War Two, so that was, you know, evocative. But also because, you know, this is one of the movies I watched with my grandma, and so that grief is always kind of lurking there in the background. And so, you know, it was that sort of bittersweet poignance that comes about when you, are, you know, have a viewing experience that reminds you of something from your past. And there is, as you say, something very rich and emotionally, like I said, evocative about those old soldiers. They're going to defend England. I mean, I just think it's really sweet. And I think about think about like our fathers and grandfathers, knowing that the young men are being shipped off. uh, And they're wondering, well, what can we do? We can't just keep going with our lives. We've got to do something. And so they're going to volunteer. And it was a real thing, the Home Guard. So I love that the movie taught us about it. 
So I mentioned that my favorite part has changed since childhood, and I thought it might be useful, you know, because this is a movie that people grow up with. Um, I'm wondering how your experience of watching it changed this time. If you remember, like, different things that stood out to you or that you um, understood differently since since you were a kid. Well, yes. Uh, as aside from the, the 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 implied criticism of the Nazis during Portobello Road, one thing that did strike me as I was watching it were the opening credits. Which, I mean, obviously, movies don't do that anymore for the most part. Like, such a shame, isn't it? It is. So the opening credits are basically. A, re- a rendition of the Bayou Tapestry, which, if you don't know, is this very large piece of tapestry met, cr- created to commemorate the Norman invasion of England in 1066. And so it struck me as, you know... I.e. when my Frenchies defeated... The Native English. The people who are now called right. the British. Yeah. Yes. The Anglo-Saxons. I call them my Frenchies because I majored in French in college and then I lived in right. France for a while. I've seen the Bayou Tapestry in person yeah. many times. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty phenomenal piece of of you know um cloth really yeah you know it's quite an extraordinary human achievement and so what's interesting about yeah and what's interesting about this credit opening sequence is it basically telegraphs for you the entire story for you like you don't really realize that until you've watched it but each panel of this fictional bayou tapestry is basically an incident from the film which is a really interesting and sort of self-reflexive way of doing your opening credits and so that was something that stood out to me as i was watching it this time because it's obviously heavy, heavily stylized but when you think about it it really is the movie including the songs because little snippets of the music are interlaced with yeah because we have like an overture with little bits of yep. each song yeah so it's quite i mean it was quite a lovely and you know sophisticated opening sequence and very long too so i really enjoyed that and i was like man i miss when movies did this <laughs> Yeah. And um, I think, you know, also, again, the expense of it, like it's a Mm -hmm. part of the film that is not technically necessary. And yet was obviously painstakingly and very expensively created. Uh, And then I also like the previewing what's going to happen, because if you're a little kid, you probably don't necessarily it doesn't register. Um, But of course, after you've seen the movie, if you watch it again, you're like, this is basically the whole plot. And there's something really fun about that. And I think this is also a time when like TV would do tonight on whatever, right? We see that on Murder, She Wrote. Mm-hmm. So there's um, something about like telling the plot isn't necessarily spoiling it the way that we, I right. think, have this like deep cultural fear of spoilers today. Because I mean, we don't, it's not like, it's not a sequential narrative per se, but it is a different kind of storytelling, which I think, especially since the Bayou Tapestry is itself a story so it's really it's very interesting that they would open the film in that way and then right after that we see the cliffs of dover and we see um the that we're told it's august 1940 and a time of whispered events now faded with the passing years and oh i love that i love the Mm. secrecy i remember as a kid feeling like this is so mysterious and secretive and then of course um when the nazis come it's late one night uh Miss Price is putting out her cat, who's called Cosmic Creepers, which is because that's the name he came with. Um, and she's putting him out, and we see these two like soldiers pop up behind her hedge, and it is terrifying. And so I think mm-hmm. there's just something oh so magically mysterious about this movie. It's just like wrapped up in like secrecy and that sense of like the fear and the war, but not like a battlefield war, like the the covert operations of war. And it's also kind of creepy when she brings all the suits of armor and stuff to life. Like, they're quite... Terrifying. 
Very, yes, very much so. Like, they are very creepy, particularly like one of them is an executioner. So he's carrying around this huge axe. And they're, of course, empty suits of armor. So they just move. Oh, yeah, they look like ghosts. It's really scary. Yeah, especially that one tracking shot, which, you know, it zooms out. You can see. It goes on for like 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's just like panning down a hill. And we see that there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of these ghost soldiers. And this, this happens, by the way, after the Nazis have landed on the shore. And the first thing that we see is a homeless man on the shore. And a hand comes up and covers his mouth and pulls him down, you know, so it's like, they, you know, so he doesn't scream, presumably. But it's like, I mean, I just, how is this a kid's movie exactly, yeah. TJ? This is so scary. And it's also such it adult is. material. Like the blitz and this, like, idea of the Germans, they, they tell Miss Price this is not an actual invasion. They're practicing their invasion. And she's going to stave them off with witchcraft. I mean, this is such a grown-up movie. I don't understand how this is a kid's movie. Well, that's the thing is it wasn't. I mean, because it's a family It's a family movie, but not necessarily a kid's movie. And and the dominant understanding of animated movies being only for children had not yet really solidified. Well, I think it's a scary movie it is, is what it, it is. It is very scary. Um, and But again, let me just reiterate, it's very satisfying to see Nazis get defeated by ghost soldiers like and with eglantine <laughs> flying on a broom above the whole battle like it's just it's really glorious to, when you think about it victory for england and saint george which yep it's run and then, of course they're chanting the the incantation trigruna mccoides trigorum sagesty yes oh i that's that's the part that like adds to the i think the drama and the scariness and also like the fun of the scene right these mm-hmm. ghost soldiers chanting the magic I mean, they're words. they're pretty evocative words, too. Mm. Like the, the incantation itself is is pretty... Have you practiced it? I practiced it, but nothing happened. I Yes, I did try it repeatedly as a child, and unfortunately... I used to try that with Harry Potter stuff, and I one time I got my dog to jump on command when I used the levitating spell. Um, oh, but this week Wingardium in my, Leviosa? Yeah, but this week in the house, I tried Traguna McCoides Tricorum Sadisti and nothing animated, so... It was really did disappointing. You try, did you try to turn him into a rabbit with the filigree epigree? <laughs> no, epigree I should pedigree? try that because I call my dog rabbit. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so do you want to hear my reflections on what's changed since childhood? Because I have a lot. I'm sure, yes. Hit, hit us with a couple of the choice bits. <laughs> choice bits. Um, well, I, Cosmic Creepers is obviously supposed to be a really creepy cat because he, like, uh, at one point... Miss Price turns Charles into a rabbit and Cosmic Creepers is chasing him and he's licking his chops like he's really hungry. And then after that, he continues to sort of evil eye Charlie and they don't like each other. Um, but this time, what really struck stood out to me is that he probably has like mange or something because his fur is all fucked up. He is a really fucked he's up really cat. He's a cat, yeah. Um, obviously, Miss Price is a lesbian. I understand obviously. that we're supposed to think she falls in love with Amelius at the end of the movie, but like... Sister lives all alone in this remote house where she studies witchcraft and she doesn't want any kids getting in the way of her life. Like, she's clearly a lesbian. And then um, I was thinking about she feeds the kids dinner (laughs) and it's like stewed nettles. What else is it like? (laughs) I don't know, but that's another evidence that she's clearly a... She's clearly a crunchy granola lesbian. lesbian. And I was thinking of you the whole time because i'm a vegetarian mostly vegan and tj is constantly making fun of the food i eat and i am constantly telling him like i'm not eating that kind of vegan food i'm just it's just vegetables and rice 
and he's always making fun of me. And then here Miss Price busts out with like rose hips and stewed nettles and thorn bush or whatever. And I'm like, and that is the kind of vegan food TJ makes fun yep. of. And I mean, if she weren't the president, she would be wearing Birkenstocks and like living in a commune. <laughs> she has such a fantastic wardrobe. Yeah, she sure does. That outfit she's wearing at the very end when they bid farewell to Amelius is gorgeous. I mm-hmm. love it. Most of it takes place in one day, and she's wearing this, like, lovely little lavender um, shirt with, like, a darker purple, Mm -hmm. blue, uh, long cardigan. But it's, like, it's cardigans and, like, pleated tweed skirts. It's so great. Mm -hmm. The thing that mostly stood out to me, though, was um, when I was a kid, I I obviously identified with Carrie because she's a girl child, and she's, like, good and does chores and listens, and the boys sort of run wild. Um, But... Charles was old, and that's why he was skeptical about magic and didn't want to be at the house. And watching this time, I was like, oh my gosh, these kids are so young. So I've obviously aged a lot. I mean, the age of not believing is a good song, too. Like, if it really, it does oh, capture, like, the poignance it? of leaving childhood behind. Like, when you're a tween and everything is just, like, confusing and changing. And you do leave behind, like, like you want to leave childhood behind, but doing so requires leaving magic behind. Like, And this yeah. is, very, I think Disney is very good at capturing that. Like, Winnie the Pooh has a similar ethos to it. And so I really appreciate that Disney includes this kind of, like, bittersweet moments. Me too. I love that. So it's, you know, she's, Charles is like, I don't believe that you're really a witch. I don't believe your little magic traveling spell is going to work. I don't, I hate you. Basically, he just wants to go home, right? Which makes sense. They've been taken out of their home to go live with a stranger for their own safety. Like, that's really scary and confusing. Um, And Miss Price sings this lovely song. Lansbury sings this lovely song about how, you know, when you rush around and you don't want to believe anything is true, you're at the age of not believing and you've got to learn how to believe in yourself. And then, of course, Cosmic Creepers comes after him. And at the last minute, he jumps on the bed with him right as it takes off and it makes him a believer. It's really, really touching. Yeah, I mean, there is character growth. Like, that's what I appreciate. As you you know, you were saying earlier in this discussion how, like, you know, the film was very good screenwriting. And it is. Like, all the characters have growth and change in the course of the film in in ways that make sense, given what they've been through. Like, Amelius discovers responsibility. Miss Price decides she doesn't want to be a witch anymore. I never understood that. So at the end of the so she has this whole battle against the Nazis that no one will ever know about. And she succeeds. And her spell kind of deflates at one point. And- well, I think, I mean, my speculation is that it's because the, as they flee, the Nazis blow up part of her house. They did indeed. Yes. And they blow up, they blow I think, up in particular like her, her little way. witch lab. Right. So I think that for her, I think that it's like, okay, I've done my this is part. Over. But then she even and tells like, Carrie, like, oh, I knew I could never be a real witch because I couldn't handle poison dragon's liver or something. But I'm like, you were a real witch. I think that's just her way of making it explicable to children. Like, I think that for mm-hmm. her, like, she's has a newer adult understanding of the sacrifices entailed with this. And, like, she has had her literal life turned upside down and blown up. <laughs> so I think it makes sense that she would want to, like, take a step back from, from sorcery. I don't accept this. I mean, I understand because at one point she says, you know, everybody has their part to play in the war effort, which is what we see in this, right? Whether you're part of the home guard or you're taking in children or you're performing witchcraft to repel the Nazis from the Dorset coast, 
everybody plays their part. And so I guess in that sense, she has played her part. She she did her duty to stop this mock invasion. But certainly she has proven that she has powers and like she could repel them again. She could stop the blitz. She could do a lot more. And I, I don't know the whole like, I'm not going to be a witch thing. It just feels like caving into some heteronormative ideal, especially since she kisses mm. Amelia Brown at the end. And yeah. Yes, he's going off with Home Guard, but he's going to come back and wait for her. And the kids have all talked about being a family together. And I'm just like, ugh, come on, be a witch. You're good at it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, I am frustrated by that ending, although I think it makes sense within the film itself. But mm-hmm. I agree with you that I'm not thrilled about the the message implied. <laughs> right? That. The powerful single woman just like, oh, just give up everything. It's fine for her husband and kids. But there is this, there is a faint suggestion when Paul holds up the still enchanted bed knob that, you know, things are not quite That's as true. settled as they might seem. The other stuff that stood out to me was like, um, I just really, I don't think I appreciated how gross Amelius Brown was as a kid. Like, he's very charming and I love David Tomlinson. Mm-hmm. I love what he does with the character. But like, his whole idea is, uh, like, first of all, he's a squatter. And then he has this vision once he realizes that Miss Price can actually do magic. He has this vision of them together and he sings this whole song trying to woo her into going to show business with him. And the whole idea is like he's going to get all the credit and she's going to be like the woman behind doing the actual magic. How is that fun for her exactly? Yeah, he's kind of gross. <laughs> but he changes, right? And so he really comes to be a respectable person at the end and gives up his ways and really seems to make a commitment to the kids and obviously joins the home guard. So in that sense, he's actually like the real protagonist of the movie, the one who has like this like character growth, this 180 change. Mm-hmm. But he's pretty gross at the beginning. <laughs> Which is so interesting because, of course, he's the holdover for Mary Poppins. Yes. Because he's Mr. Banks Mr. Banks. Mary Poppins. Who also who undergoes also the transformation. Also is the protagonist, because Mary Poppins never changes. Right. So there is an interesting inversion, though, because as, as we know, Mr. Banks goes from being this, you know, stern, upright, Edwardian, patriarchal figure to being much more, like, lackadaisical and, and, and you know, much more lighthearted, whereas Emilius does the opposite. That's true. That's the, a good point. The lighthearted person to being, um, you know, the more solid, upstanding citizen. Well, we know that this movie uh, was in development before Mary Poppins because they couldn't get the rights to the book, but then Mary Poppins actually got made first. So uh, I think it's logical to want to compare the two. So let's do that. Let's talk a little bit about that. So we do have David Tomlinson in both. I mean, I will be honest. I love Mary Poppins. Don't get me wrong. I love it both because of my queer appeal of, you know, Julie Andrews. I just think it's a good movie. But I always felt more of an attachment to this movie, and I mm-hmm. and I think that I think it's a, a more fun movie. Even though, you know, Miss Price is kind of as stiff as Mary Poppins is. There's just there's a sort of looseness to Bedknobs that I think is lacking in Mary Poppins because Mary Poppins, partially because of its setting, just the more upright up in uptight period of Edwardian England, just feels like a stiffer movie. Whereas there's just a, a certain more magical looseness to Batman. At least that's how I feel. Let, let's talk about the comparisons a little bit. I mean, we have um, some really basic stuff narratively and aesthetically, right? Like, it's single women taking care of kids. Um, they're not actually that nice. They're not, like, friendly, cuddly, like, charming nannies types, right? They're both a little bit stiff, mm-hmm. as you said. Um, we have Bert is sort of the parallel to Amelius Brown. They're both street performers. 
but Bert seems pretty beloved by the neighborhood where Amelius Brown, like, sucks and everybody hates him. <laughs> and then we have, like, the magic, right? So Mary Poppins, like, has people mm-hmm. jumping in the sidewalk. And here we have the traveling bed. They both have animation sequences where the characters are interacting with animals, talking animals specifically. They both have the dubious boy child who doesn't believe in magic. Um, and then if we think about the new Mary Poppins with Emily Blunt, um, there's actually a whole sequence underwater, singing and dancing with fish underwater, which feels like now we've gone for a full circle. So mm. now bed knobs is, you know, so Mary Poppins to bed knobs, right. and now it's back to let's to draw from bed knobs for Mary Poppins. I think I, I I actually have not seen Mary Poppins Returns, but I oh but. it's fun. It's I was I was really hesitant because when I was a kid. And people would all talk, like, who's your favorite Disney princess? Like, who represents you? Because your favorite Disney princess was, like, your identity or something. And I'd always, like, snarl. I'd always snarl and be like, Mary Poppins. Like, I'm not having that Belle versus Ariel nonsense. It was like, Mary Poppins. So I I was really protective of that. And then uh, I did watch Mary Poppins Returns, and it is actually really charming. And I think they did it very lovingly. It's funny, because you're obviously a Belle. Okay. No. She is like, no, that's so offensive. Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, my God. Would you rather be the one who has Stockholm Syndrome or the one who can't talk? Like, these choices are terrible. Come on. Or, I'm sorry, the narcoleptic who gets mauled in her sleep by someone in a non-consensual kiss? These choices are terrible. Mary Poppins and Eglantine Price, people, I'm telling you. Well, anyway, not to get too far off the beaten path with Bridget's <laughs> Disney hatred. <laughs> so you mentioned David Tomlinson, and I absolutely love what he does in this. And it's it's so joyful because Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins is really uptight and scary. And I was so afraid of him as a kid. Mm. And in this movie, like... Uh, now I can dissociate my fear of Mr. Banks from the actor, right? Because in yeah. this movie, he's like, he's fun. I mean, Tomlinson is really good in this role. Like, mm-hmm. he is very, very skilled at, you know, creating these very drastically different characters. And I think that's a real testament to his ability. As, even though he's not a particularly, like, famous actor, he's just kind of a character actor in some ways. But he's very good at what he does. Yeah, he is. Uh, we also have, like, Roddy McDowell in this, weirdly. For, like, two minutes, literally. <laughs> so, as one more note about the stars of this movie, the captain of the Old Home Guard is another Mary Poppins alum. He is Reginald Owen, who plays the captain, the delusional captain. Post everyone! That guy. Yes, that guy from Mary Poppins. Admiral Boom. Uh, who dies, like, two or three years after this is made. But Oh! Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. He's lovely. I also love um, Tessie O'Shea as the the woman who um, rounds up all the kids. Yes, yes. I love her with lilting Welsh accent. Although I have to say, my favorite character in this movie is in it for like a minute. He's the guy painting the sign at the opening. Oh, it, painting the it. sign to keep the, you know, to help keep the Nazis like from knowing where they're. And then this British officer drives up and he's like, can you tell me how to get to Pepper and Die? And the guy's like, I can't. I'm painting all the signs so that the Nazis, the Nazis. Said on the wireless to paint out the signposts. And he's like, but I'm a British officer. And the guy's like, well, that's just what you'd say if you was a Nazi, isn't it, sir? Yes, I love that so much. (laughs) And I think what what utterly delighted me in the early days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine was that people used that exact same strategy. Like 70, what, 80 years later? 
paint the signposts, confuse the enemy. I love it. My other favorite moment is with the secretary bird, who's, you know, when they're at Nabumbu, and he says very superciliously, throw these creatures back into the lagoon. And I was like, my partner turns to me, he's like, well, we know which character you are, so... <laughs> totally. <laughs> that was a really good, like, uh, roll of your eyes there. Yeah, well, what can it? The trill, yeah. <laughs> so we obviously, you know, Lansbury is obviously our biggest star. And uh, it's so curious to me, Teach, how much you and I love this and how little it gets discussed in her um, in her biographies. It's always, like, one paragraph. Like, yeah, And then she went and made that movie. And um, she, didn't, she didn't particularly <laughs> like working on it because Disney is so regimented. It's like this real factory mm. system. Everything's storyboarded. You have to do everything perfectly. Um, and I think she was disappointed by some of the cuts they made. But uh, it's just funny to me because it's almost like the way she complains about the Cabot Cove episodes. And yet those are the ones mm-hmm. we love the most. So Yeah. Dame Lansbury, wherever you are in heaven, you just need to lighten up, honey. We like when you do the cutesy stuff. And and correct me if I'm wrong, Bridget, but, you know, I know you did a lot of time with the the archives of of Ms. Lansbury. Does it strike you that of all her screen characters, she might be the most like Eglantine? (laughs) I mean, obviously, I don't know her personally, uh, but it certainly kind of feels that way in some sense. You know, like we talked about how... People always, I think you and I have talked about this before on the podcast, that people want to make Jessica Fletcher a lot more cuddly than she really is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that Lansbury herself was not always the cuddliest. That's mm-hmm. the impression that I got from her personal papers. And I think, yeah, like like Eglantine, like she's she's got her business. She needs to do her business. Don't stand in the way of her getting her business done. Right. She's very professional and courteous about it. She is. And I mean, I yeah. love, I, but I love what I also, you know, there are these moments when, when Lansbury sort of allows us to see the softer side of, of her. The age mm-hmm. of not believing being the most notable example. Like there's a sweetness mm-hmm. and a poignance to that. And there's even moments where she like lets her hair down a bit. Like she starts dancing at Portobello Road at this one moment, like when she gets swept up. Yeah. Like I appreciate that Lansbury allows us to see those well, moments and, too. Well, and in the substitutionary locomotive mm-hmm. scene, she's trying to perform the spell and it's not working and Professor Brown says she needs to jazz it up and we see her dancing and she swishes her hips and she's kind of letting herself let go a little bit. And then the spell works. Yep. So it was just striking. I mean, I I too had heard that she did not particularly enjoy working on this film. And it's just so funny because you don't know that from her performance. Like that's just a a testament to how skilled she is that she was able to, you know, embody this character despite her personal, despite her feelings about the, the material itself. She's utterly professional. So I would say, actually, you know, in the canon of Lansbury, uh, I'm going to say this is the best of her movies, even though she liked it the least. Or actually, I don't think she liked it the least because I think she liked the one in the grocery store the least. But I would talk for me, it's tied with Manchurian just because I think it's so they're so different. Oh, that is such a great movie. Yeah. So I think that for me, those yeah. two are testaments to like her, like this and Manchurian are testaments to what her career could have been in films if she'd ever been given the kind of material that she deserved and hadn't been sort of that's a good point hadn't been written, yeah. largely written off because she didn't fit into the models of studio hollywood and you've picked out nice polar ends of what her career could have been too like on manchurian we see the the evil villainous drama almost melodrama because it's so such heightened emotion and then over here we have the lighter stuff the singing and the dancing and it really it shows like her incredible range as an actor and they're both like really great scripts, really great characters. 
I and I think that I think I may have said this at the beginning, but it does seem to me that millennials in particular, because of our the time we grew up when Disney was in the resurgence, like we have a specific relationship to this movie that I'm not sure even the people who originally watched it <laughs> did, because certainly the critics were like, eh. <laughs> it's pretty much just seems to be that what the critics were like, eh, it's fine. It's not great. It's no Mary Poppins, basically what they said. I just don't understand. I, I say this as someone who adores Mary Poppins. I could recite the entire script to Mary Poppins right now if you ask me to. But this is a fantastic movie. It is. I think, I mean, as, a, as an amateur Disney historian, I think it's just fallen victim to the prevailing wisdom of what Disney was in the 70s, which is that it was reeling from Walt's death in a kind of lack of direction. And so it tends to fall into that period of Disney filmmaking that gets largely overlooked because it comes before the Renaissance of the 90s, but after the golden age of the 50s and early 60s. So it kind of occupies that weird place. Well, fortunately, everybody can watch it whenever they want now on Disney+. Plus. Uh, so people go watch it. Actually, don't. Don't give Disney Plus your money. Find a pirated version. Get it from your local library. I, I, I will sign on for the, I will co-sign the library part. Okay. TJ, the non-pirate. <laughs> but go. <laughs> well, not that kind of pirate anyway. But go watch it because it's a really fantastic movie and we think it deserves more attention and we absolutely love it. And we hope you will too, if you haven't seen it. And if you have seen it, go watch it again and you'll fall back in love. It is. We give it the Cabaco seal of approval. <laughs> and then some. So thank you for joining us on our very special episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. We'll catch you next time. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 